Welcome to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. Your host is Jessica Pirro. In today's program, we will provide awareness and education on various types of crises, the impact they have on one's well-being, and provide help to empower hope for you or someone you love. This program will help you understand various types of crisis situations by hearing from experts in the crisis response field, as well as those with lived experience through a difficult time. Now, here's Jessica Pirro. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. I am your host, Jessica Pirro, and I want to thank you so much for tuning into our show today. As we begin our discussion, and if you have any questions during the show, you can always email me at jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That is J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. And we also will be taking calls from our listeners today. So if you have any questions for our guests during the show, please call us toll-free at 1-866-472-5792. So we'd love to hear from our listeners. So please consider sending us a question or giving us a call today. I come to you live every week from Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York, where I proudly serve as the CEO. Uh, the topics we've been covering over the last uh, eight weeks since we started the show really gives you a look into the day in the life of crisis centers across the country, where crisis first responders are always ready to provide support, intervention, and hope during a difficult time. If you're interested in learning more about our agency and our mission or how you can donate to crisis services, please visit our website at www. .crisisservices.org. Um, as I shared with you last week, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so I'm dedicating a few shows this month to really highlight uh, the different work uh, that's occurring in our communities across the country around sexual violence prevention. Last week, we had experts in the field discussing the response after a rape occurs. This week, we wanted to focus on prevention of these crimes, and we'll be talking about efforts occurring to move the needle and how our culture responds to sexual violence. But before we start our discussion, I wanted to share with you a resource that if during the show you need to talk with a counselor... Um, um, or if what we're describing impacts someone you love and you're looking to try to figure out how to get them help, that we ask you to reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline, and that number is 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. And you can also go online to RAIN.org for information, resources, and also how to find your local rape crisis center. Um, and they also have the ability on their website to be able to chat online with a counselor. So please, if during the shows, um, any of the issues that we're dealing with, we always want to provide a resource for you to reach out. So please reach out. The help is out there to kind of give you some hope um, and encouragement in what you're dealing with. So for today's show, I have three guests that will join, be joining me throughout the uh, show and that will be dissecting prevention at the local and statewide level. So joining me today are Caitlin Pawalski, who is our Sexual Violence Prevention Coordinator here at Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York. I also have Brandy Sutherland. She's our Sexual Violence Prevention Educator at Crisis Services in Buffalo. And a little bit later on in the show, I'm going to, from Albany, New York, we'll be have uh, Joanne Zanoni, who's the Executive Director of the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Assault. So she'll be joining us a little bit later on the show to give us the state perspective. 
So I want to introduce you to my guests that are here with me in the studio today. I have Caitlin Pawalski, who serves, as I mentioned, as the Sexual Violence Prevention Coordinator here at Crisis Services. And she is responsible for a tri-county collaborative effort that's focusing on primary prevention of sexual violence within two other Western New York partners in our community, which is Monroe and Niagara Counties. Caitlin holds a Bachelor's of Arts in History and a Master's of Public Health from the University of Rochester and previously has worked in college health and research. And I also want to highlight our other guest, Brandi Sutherland. Brandi has her Bachelor's in Sociology from SUNY Geneseo. She currently serves as a Sexual Violence Prevention Specialist at Crisis Services. She works as part of a team where she helps to develop strategy and procedure, implementation and evaluation of sexual violence prevention efforts, both locally and within the partnering Western New York counties. Brandy began her work with Crisis Services as a volunteer, responding um, 24 hours a day to the hospital whenever a victim of domestic violence or sexual violence presented. She excelled as a volunteer and was hired by our advocate program as a family violence case manager in 2003 and held that position until becoming the training specialist in 2007. And as a training specialist, Brandy provided numerous community education um, presentations around the issues of sexual assault, domestic violence, elder abuse and other related topics uh, within our advocate program. And she also was in charge of all of our volunteer training and managing the volunteers. So she's had a a lot of duties uh, during her time here at Crisis Services. So I want to welcome both of you to the show today, and thank you so much for taking time out of your day to share your expertise with um, our listeners around sexual violence prevention. So to get our discussion started, um, I guess to, to really just start off, can you explain to us, Caitlin, maybe, you could start um, what prevention means in the context of sexual violence. Definitely. So happy to be here. And when we think about prevention, uh, there's just a couple layers of prevention that we want to think about. So primary prevention of sexual violence means really preventing violence before it occurs. So teaching healthy behaviors and attitudes and social norms that create safe, healthy communities before violence is even on the radar. And that's really what we focus on in in the context of our work here at Crisis Services in in my role and in the work I do with Brandy. However, the agency at large also looks at secondary and tertiary prevention. So responding when someone is in immediate crisis or perhaps right after a sexual assault or a rape occurs or providing long-term counseling and uh, prevention of reoccurrence of sexual assault. And so really in the context of primary prevention, we know that sexual violence is a problem. We've been talking about it. Sexual Assault Awareness Month is ongoing right now. And we have high rates of sexual violence occurring. So our belief is that everybody can do something to prevent sexual violence from happening. And it starts on focusing on primary prevention. So how do we engage with Uh, younger kiddos and have conversations around what's safe and healthy and what we want to be normal in our culture. And so right now we have a culture that has high tolerance and and normalized experiences of violence and very narrow definitions of how women or men are supposed to act. And we don't really have a lot of conversations around prevention and, and we're uncomfortable talking about these topics in general as a society. So really our work is focused on continuing conversations around preventing violence 
before it occurs. And if I can give an example of absolutely an analogy that we often use in public health, and our, our model and approach is really taking a public health look at this. So identifying the needs and the gaps in our society, some of that is really specifically around prevention efforts, and then moving forward, what do we do? So if we think about a river, so in the river we have, it's a, it's a racing river, and we have folks that are in the river further downstream who need to be pulled out of the river. So here the river is sexual violence, and we have folks at the, at the end of the river and in the rapids who have been experiencing sexual violence, whether it's themselves or a loved one, and we pull them out. And that response is very important. We pull them out and we give them the response they need after they've experienced a crisis. But up the river, up the riverbank, folks are still going into the river. Folks are still experiencing sexual violence. And so we want, as a community, to help people not experience sexual violence, to keep them essentially out of the river. Right, and right. so we in our sexual violence prevention efforts, look at community accountability and policies and norms that would help keep more people safe and keep people out of the river, out of harm's ways. And that is not to minimize anyone's experience with sexual violence. We know it happens. We know that we have response that's there, but we can do better at preventing sexual violence. The human cost is way too high. So we need to, as a community, be working further upstream further up the river and stopping it before it happens. So that's really the primary prevention focus that we have. And that's really critical. I mean, I think with a lot of the issues that our organizations throughout the country deal with when it comes to crisis centers, prevention hasn't always been the primary focus, right? It's that response piece. So this is such a critical kind of shift, if you will, about the attention at, at both the local as well as our state level that taking prevention on as a primary focus um, of not only uh, the work that we're doing, but also putting funding behind it, which is mm -hmm. the initiative that you're, you're all working on here in Erie County. So I imagine the approach uh, doesn't happen in a vacuum. Are there other issues that impact the prevalence of sexual violence? Certainly. And I think, again, going from the, the public health approach of looking at what are the needs in our community and, and what are really, in a public health term, risk and protective factors around um, either experiencing sexual violence, so being a victim of sexual violence, or perpetrating sexual violence. So we want to look at the social and cultural norms that really make our communities ripe for sexual violence. So thinking about how much violence do we tolerate? How much violence is considered normal? Right. Um, a lot around alcohol or other substance use. And that's not blaming anyone, but that's saying, like, we, where, what do we tolerate in our society? How much around poverty? What are the other really tough instances that communities are dealing with? And that's going to look different all around the Buffalo area. And, and nationally, too, and statewide. But we see a lot of interrelated risks around aggression, violence, control and dominating personalities that are that are fostered within communities. So and and we have in America a lot of silence around mm -hmm. this is a family issue or this is a community issue and we can't talk about it. And so our goals with primary prevention is trying to unpack all of that talking about gender and gender roles and expectations, talking about the silence and how it's not about being quiet, that we need to sort of break open these doors and have conversations. And then to go back to the, the river analogy, the community accountability around what are we going to set up as our safe and healthy environment, our safe and social family environments, our, 
our campus environments, our cultural environments. And it's, it, to a certain degree, requires a large overhaul, but it's happening. It's starting to happen. And then we need the laws and the policies that hold people accountable. Right, right. So all those kind of the, the continuum of that type of system of care really needs the full overview of, of how we look at this issue from prevention, intervention, as well as the accountability of the crimes that um, unfortunately are committed pretty regularly in our society today. So what are some of the ways prevention is implemented in our communities? So absolutely. I think talking about it is <laughs> the first step, right? It's definitely the first step. And, and dedicating time and space, people power, funding power to prevention. So prevention is a long-term goal. It's a long-term game. It's, it's really looking to stop the ebb and flow of violence long-term. So it requires us to really look at some, some, what are some of those root causes of violence and that that's tricky those are mm-hmm. difficult conversations mm-hmm. and so some of the strategies that we're using and we're, we're going to talk I think in more detail around the the funding structure and the grant that that we're working on currently funded throughout the New York State Department of Health here but coalition building so really bringing together additional key stakeholders in our community that have the resources or the time or the energy or the personal involvement to really think about how do we comprehensively work to create a safe and healthier community. So for me, preventing sexual violence is really that simple. We need safer and healthier campus communities, school communities, families, and our communities at large. So we bring key stakeholders together on coalitions and we we have those conversations. What are we currently doing? What training needs to be done? What else can we be talking about? Do we have policies in workplaces or at state and local levels that hold people accountable? So we have those conversations in actual physical coalitions. Mm -hmm. And then we do some of those community mobilization type things. So how do we raise awareness? We have Walk a Mile in Her Shoes coming up, you know, on Sunday here and creating those safe places where those conversations can happen and folks can get involved in those type of things. And then we look at those norms that I was talking about before and have creative conversations around that and think about unpacking that and challenging beliefs in appropriate and developmentally appropriate ways. Right, absolutely. And, and age appropriate mm-hmm. as well. Mm-hmm. And then we look at our policies. Are our policies good enough to keep people safe, to hold people accountable, both at our workplaces, at our schools, and, and more collectively in our legislators. Right, right. And I think that's the safe place for people to come forward. Like you talked about with a coalition, you're able to bring like minds together. So it is a safe place to begin with for people to come forward and, and be part of that dialogue and that conversation. There have been other models of prevention that have shown success, like uh, drunk driving efforts, um, things like that. Can you talk a little bit about how those have been successful and how what do we learn from them to kind of bring into the sexual violence prevention efforts? Certainly. And I think um, we're seeing this, too, around opioid uh, use and abuse in, in America as well right now, it's what as a community are we going to say is acceptable and where as a community are we going to say we need help and where as a community are we, are we going to say that we need change. And the drunk driving with alcohol consumption, with opioid use, and specifically with sexual violence, the human cost is way too high. And so we've reached sort of this critical mass. And in a very traditional way in America, we tend to be more reactive than we do to be proactive right. or preventive. Right. So really now is the time to really say, We continue to do excellent response work and we do prevention work and we stop this 
before it can, before it happens, before it ever even starts. Right, right. Now, what do sexual violence prevention efforts look like across the U.S.? I know that there's some model state programs to highlight. I know the CalCASA is one. Can you just talk briefly about what that sure. is? So the California Coalition Against Sexual Assault, CalCASA, and, and PreventConnect.org is another great resource. It's really thinking about how do we bring all of these minds together. And a critical piece around prevention right now is skill building. So how do we teach these mm. skills that we don't have? And so that's what we're going to see running through Prevent Connect resources, as well as a lot of conversations around bystander intervention, which I'm pretty sure we're going to talk about later in the show too, but really building skills that would allow people to basically not perpetrate sexual violence right. and to keep each other safe. Good. And it's interesting. I know we'll get a a little bit more deeper into this discussion in the second segment, but I know just from the work that you guys have been doing here locally, um, that awareness of just the basic skills, like you're talking about, that a lot of young people don't come into either even high school with around healthy relationships, what that means. So you're kind of taking a step back to educate before you can really dive into what is those preventative efforts they need to be aware of um, as part of part of this. So um, is there any other pieces with the Prevent Connect or I, I see here we have a, a conversation about Green Dot. Is there anything there you want to highlight as well? I think just in that there are there are national programs, Green Dot, Bringing the Bystander, that look at campus-based interventions around bystander behavior. But really it's this core idea around exactly what you were just saying, skill building. So we can Education alone, it won't change actual behavior. So we need to practice those skills. We need to practice how might you intervene if you thought a scenario was risky or dangerous. How might you help keep people safe? Wonderful. All right. Well, we have a lot to get into. We've already touched on a lot so far, but in our second segment, we'll be able to dive in deeper. So um, as I mentioned earlier in the show, if you are, um, as we're talking about the issue of sexual violence, if you need to talk with a counselor, please reach out to the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. So please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Much of the time, the illnesses that people feel are simply symptoms, and they mask the root cause of what the real health problem is. You can take back control of your own health, starting with Billionaire Healthcare. This program is hosted by Ashley Black. Our program will introduce you to fascia, which is the knowledge of the living matrix. This bit of knowledge can bring you the health secrets that only the rich and famous have known until now. Listen Wednesdays at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific on Voice America Health & Wellness. The root causes of disease can be better prevented and cured using an integration of modern medicine and holistic healing techniques. Become educated by tuning in to Generation Regeneration with Sandra Guy Malhotra. Conventional medicine does have its place, but it should not be the only course of action. It's all about regenerating and healing our whole selves through better choices in lifestyle, foods, spiritual connection, and stress management. Tune in every Tuesday at noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Tune in every Tuesday for C. diff, spores, and more with hosts Nancy Kerala and Dr. Chandra Bali Ghosh. 
Our program is to provide information about C. diff, healthcare-associated infections, and more. Nancy is a C. diff survivor, healthcare professional, and the founder and executive director of the C. diff Foundation. And Dr. Ghosh is the chairperson of research and development for the C. diff Foundation. Together with their guests, we'll explore infection prevention, treatments, environmental safety, and more. Listen every Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific, on Voice America Health & Wellness. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pira. Welcome back, everyone. Um, As I mentioned at the beginning of the show, uh, we are highlighting a conversation around sexual violence prevention. Um, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so I've been dedicating a few shows this month to really dive deep into this discussion. It is an issue that impacts so many people in our society, um, and we all have a part in helping to prevent sexual violence in our communities. So um, I have Caitlin Pawalski and Brandi Sutherland who are joining me who uh, both do sexual violence prevention work here at Crisis Services in Buffalo, New York. So we're going to talk a little bit more of a localized conversation about some of the work that we're doing here. So can you, um, either either one of you, however you want to go about it, can you share uh, with our listeners what New York State has been doing in terms of sexual violence prevention? So right now we are part of Region 6. So the New York State Department of Health funded six regional centers throughout New York State that are focused on the comprehensive primary prevention of sexual violence. So here in Erie County, we work with two partner agencies in Monroe County and in Niagara counties, and we're looking at a regional approach to sexual violence prevention. We do a public health model like we were talking about, and Brandy and I are going to, I think, spend some time in this segment talking about some of the specifics and programs that we do do. But we are partnered up, uh, Western New York regions here, and there are five other regions throughout the state. Great. Now, in the last segment, we discussed a little bit about different ways prevention is implemented. So I'm wondering if you can share with the listeners some ways that our region has been implementing these this effort. Sure. Uh, bystander intervention is one of the ways that we've decided to approach the issue of culture change, uh, behavior change in our community. So what we've been able to do is partner with with different entities, such as colleges, and talk with them about who their communities of influence are, who their folks are that inspire others to act or behave the way that they do. And once they identify those folks, we've been able to sit down and talk with them about what this problem looks like, but also how they can develop skills that mean little change, little behaviors that can have a big impact on the existence of violence in their community. So talking with them about the problem and what their small behavior changes can mean for prevention of the problem as a whole. So bystander intervention has been something that's been successful. 
Um, it's something that we can give to groups at a time, but also not be asking so much that it becomes intimidating or too much for them to handle so that they turn off from it as we're talking. So it's really something that's easy for them to digest and assimilate into their behaviors when they're out in social circumstances. Um, we've been working closely with a lot of different campus communities, college communities, and that's give us, given us an opportunity to really build relationships uh, that allow us to work towards efforts um, for culture change, give us the opportunity to talk with people, and especially the young people moving into our communities as they develop their careers and get their education, um, and help them understand their role in the community and, and build that up a little bit. So culture change is then affected by the way they learned and the things that they were exposed to as they moved through their education. So building uh, coalitions with the, with the campus communities has afford us, afforded us the opportunity to inspire that change, teach about that change, but also be present and create communities that are wholesome and ready to be accepting and believing of, of survivors when they do come forward. Um, and on a community scale, we've developed coalitions, and Caitlin alluded to those a little bit earlier, working with other entities in the community that have different skills, have different points of access to folks in the community. They have different talents or different strengths, different things that we can all work together and kind of combine with to create messages and spread messages out into the community that inspire violence prevention or inspire the desire to have behavior change that creates violence prevention. And having a coalition of organizations that work together to do this, that combine their skills and talents, allows us to have a more widespread impact. Mm -hmm. um, it creates an opportunity for more translatable messages to a greater number of communities. So it's really kind of exciting to be able to draw on all those different talents and points of access in a coalition. That's great. And I, again, I think that tapping into other uh, partners and providers and even just the different lenses that they're coming from and how they look at the needs in our community helps us to shape what's the best approach um, and, and sharing that message and get it, making sure that it's translating and being heard um, the way that we're hoping it would be. Um, so you've described that there are the regions across the state. So the Department of Health um, has defined regions across the state um, to work on a sexual violence prevention in New York State. Do these regions collaborate in any capacity? Yes, and I think historically, and, and Joanne will likely talk about this more in the next segment, historically, the, the funded entities, so ourselves and our partners are rape crisis centers. And so there has been a strong network historically of rape crisis centers in New York State and also working together. And we've had some conversations with regions that are closer to us too about how we might also be able to think about what are you, who are you working with, what populations, what populations might we share. Mm -hmm. And so there's some movement there as well. And then it's a, this is not necessarily just a New York State issue. Right. This is a worldwide issue, but, but certainly there's New York State dedicated time and money and people power behind this right now in terms of looking at this and what are we doing as a state to, to prevent sexual violence. So I think there's a definite movement right. there. And also as a state, having a universal message of what's um, allowable and what's expected of right. our uh, our residents throughout the state um, in addressing this issue. So we did have a question that came in from one of our listeners, and I think it's touching on um, something you had mentioned a little bit, uh, Brandy. Um, 
with the bystander intervention. It says, can you give a specific example of story of how this worked in the college community? So is there, when you've done the trainings on the college campuses with, the, with that particular um, intervention, is there an experience that you could share? Sure. I think that uh, a lot of folks or most folks who are exposed to the challenges that a campus faces um, can appreciate the challenge of the issue of alcohol and the use of alcohol on a college campus and how that combines and sometimes mixes with the issue of sexual violence. And so we talk a lot about being in a social setting, um, being out and, and being in those environments where maybe the, the alcohol is present and being an active witness, paying attention to what's going on around you so that you can identify when something that you know just isn't really going to head in a good direction can be directly intervened with. It could be um, sort of delegated to someone else. Maybe you see someone who is to your knowledge, under the influence of alcohol, being led into a bedroom, and you know that her best friend is right next to you, well, maybe you can delegate her best friend to go and chat with her and check in with her, see what's going on. Uh, We talk about other types, such as um, creating a diversion, distracting the community or the environment, whatever's going on, so that you can stop whatever might not be headed in the right direction from happening. And so we, when we are doing skill building with the students, we give them scenarios to work off of and these sort of tips and ideas about being direct or delegating or distracting in their intervention so that they can start to create actual concrete ideas of what these small behaviors could look like to impact change. And I think especially for for young adults as well as adolescents and kids, having like examples to kind of work through so that when they're witnessing that, they can say, oh, we talked about this, or my mom and dad told me about this, or I learned this at school. You see that really playing out um, for young people is if they have those real life experiences shared with them, that they can then think about that. So when they're placed in that situation, they're more likely to act to intervene or or be a part of helping to support somebody else who might be um, being, you know, potential harm, if you will. So, And you set that up, I think, really well. When we think about a public health approach, we would want my interactions. So if I'm thinking about intervening, I would want my actions to intervene and to keep someone safe to be reinforced by my family, by my school, by my community at large. So we really want to make sure that it is comprehensive in that. So again, the community accountability around that. And then also, With sexual violence prevention, we're still trying, the reality is we're still figuring out what works. So we are doing evaluation of our programs. We are doing pre and post testing Mm -hmm. and and looking at uh, behavior change a few months in time out with our campus partners. We are having that collaboration and we do look to make sure that our programs are effective. And and we're really looking at sort of those attitudes and behavior changes. And And really one session, one session won't won't change behavior. So we want to make sure that it is multimodal, that there's proper, I'll call it dosing, that folks do see this and that they see it again and they practice the behaviors, they build those skills and the policies are there and the cultural expectation is there. And Granny alluded to to the idea of additional stakeholders around our coalitions. And so culturally, where do we have value in in Western New York, in the Buffalo area and nationwide? And, And what's the role of our media? As a, as a powerful force for good in this. What, what is our role of athletes and, and sports in general? And, and culturally, where do, we, where do we have value? Because that value and where we place value will also help us prevent sexual violence if the leaders in those spaces are also 
right. promoting safe, respectful, healthy families and communities. And, and we, I mean, not everyone chooses to do sexual violence right? We have, and, but there are most people, if not all, get behind the idea of respectful, safe, healthy families and communities. And, yes. and that's what we want to augment. Absolutely, absolutely. Now, in doing this work, and you had mentioned it's earlier, you know, this topic area can be uncomfortable for people. We're used to having these conversations, right? We're dealing with this work every day, and we're exposed to this issue. But for a lot of people, it can be uncomfortable um, to, to hear it, let alone discuss the conversation. So can you share some challenges maybe you've had when doing your education um, from maybe the audience members around this topic? And, um, and how did you handle that when it occurred? It is very challenging, and I, I think I think that that's because the topic isn't one that we're comfortable or culturally accustomed to discussing. We don't, as a culture, often sit down and have structured conversations about this stuff. It's uncomfortable. It's not, you know, it's not something that we love to actually have conversations about. And the images that we receive as we grow and become part of our communities aren't ones that support having mature conversations. And so it becomes a challenge whenever you're faced with someone who wants to present information about sex or sexual violence or anything in that field, um, it really can make pretty make people pretty uncomfortable. And so um, sometimes when we're in front of an audience, it's facing challenges around lack of education. Um, because we don't have these conversations, lack of educa education about how, how safe sex happens or what sexual violence really looks like in our community is, is that exists and that's a problem and it can be challenging to present that information. But also when you have a lack of education about any topic, there are influences from all over the community and all over the culture that create myth that sometimes mm. becomes what you do know right. about that topic. When you're not having the right conversation, sometimes the wrong stuff sneaks into your brain. And we have a lot of challenges about what around what people believe to be true or what they, they have gotten the impression of throughout their childhood and teen years. And so talking with them about how we understand that the implications or the ideas that they're presenting to us um, are what they've been taught or presented on or... Um, have at least seen examples of in their community as they've grown and developed um, and how we accept that that's what they know. But at the same time, there are other things to take into consideration. And so offering them the opportunity to have new education is really important. Mm -hmm. And other opinions and ideas to consider too as they're, as they're developing and growing, um, that there are these other options to consider when you're thinking about this issue. Yeah. So I think we could probably give an example of this too. So, you know, maybe you're the presenter and I'm somebody that's in the audience and maybe I ask you, you know, well, why, why was that person who was victimized even there? Mm -hmm. Like, why were they there? Or what were they doing there? And, and how might you respond to that as the presenter? Well, I think that I would say, I, I hear why you would ask that. I understand why you would ask that, given the way we currently think about things in our community. But really, when we look at it, um, what are the rights of this person to be in any one place at any point in time? And what is the real issue here? What is What is it that was taken away and what wasn't? what permission wasn't given, um, and that we kind of bring it back to the topic at hand um, after we validate the experience of, of what they're sharing. 
And that's really how we operationalize the prevention and the conversations and, and sort of overcoming some of those challenges because really, and in particular, campuses have a tough time with this because for the most part, they're, they're already starting to work with populations that are have had 18 plus years right, of existence. Right, right. So right. that's not all going to change in, in one dialogue with, with Brandy and I. I mean, we hope and that would work us out of a job quick, quickly. <laughs> but, and so it's getting there and it's really validating like culturally we get why you would think this Mm -hmm. but we have to do better because folks are still experiencing sexual violence yeah and i think it's the piece is is like you said you're especially with campuses but even for with teenagers there's years of of information they've been exposed to or direction that's been given by whoever's in their their surrounding circles so to kind of challenge that a little bit giving Mm -hmm. up opinions to think about is important for one's development just um uh, we just have a few minutes left here for this segment so just can you give a few tips that you can share with our listeners on how they might talk about sexual violence with their children. Sure. I think that, you know, and of course, my other role here is that I am a mom. And so I've taken that challenge on, not only because it's my career, but I think it's my responsibility. Um, I think that teaching that it is your responsibility to have permission to be in anyone's personal space at any point in time is something that can be translated at every developmental stage. So when you're talking with little ones about um, getting in another child's personal space, or we talk with parents about um, putting kids in situations where they're not comfortable getting in another person's personal space and what that means for them, what that feels like. So going with that uh, theme that it's a right and a responsibility to be able to give and get consent to be in someone else's personal space is something that can start very young and then develop with the child. So as their maturity level develops and their possible exploration of sex develops, you can then take that conversation and run with it and say, well, this, the same thing goes. If you want to have permission to, or to be in someone's personal space or to touch someone in a certain way, then you have to have that same kind of permission that we've always talked about. It comes down to consent. And I know Mm -hmm. we talked about last week when we had our providers that do that response after uh, uh, sexual assault, the, the conversation about consent is, is such a big part of this. And But it's consent about not just sex, it's about everything, um, about the interaction you have with someone next to you, or like you said, the personal space. I love the way that you frame that, especially for younger children and how yes. we can start to educate them. So I want to thank the two of you for, for all of your uh, information today on sexual violence prevention. We have jo- Joanne Zanoni, who's going to be joining us on the third segment that's going to be talking from the statewide level, but I want to thank you so much for what you've been able to share with our listeners today and hopefully give them a little bit of a a little uh, point that they can share with their friends and family. So um, as we head to break, just a reminder that if you need to speak with someone because you've been raped or sexually assaulted, you can call the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-HOPE. That's 1-800-656-4673. Please stay tuned. You're listening to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. We are bombarded daily with information about beauty products and anti-aging treatments. Do you know how they have been tested? Are they truly going to make a change or just take the change out of your pocket? Tune in to Shelley's Show and Tell with host Shelley Hancock. 
We'll bring you the top-rated skincare products and treatments tested by Real Transformation Skin Care Centers. We'll motivate you to make the best changes. Listen Mondays at 1 p.m. Pacific Time, 4 p.m. Eastern on Voice America Health & Wellness. Transformational healing includes energy medicine as well as hands-on healing. Tune in every week to Transformational Healing with Dr. Bonnie Morrow. If you want to know more about the business and science of energy fields, chakras, and the medical and spiritual community, join our expert guests as we work together to bring you closer to your personal health vision. Transformational Healing is heard live every Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time, 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to The Journey, stories of crisis and hope. We'd love to hear from you with any questions or comments about the show. Please send an email to jpirrovoiceamerica at gmail.com. That's J-P-I-R-R-O, voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the journey. Here again is Jessica Pirro. Welcome back, everyone, and thank you so much for tuning in today. As I mentioned um, earlier in the show, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month, so I've dedicated a few shows this month to really highlight the work that's occurring in our communities around sexual assault response as well as sexual violence prevention. So now joining me um, is to give a statewide perspective on addressing the issue of rape and sexual assault is Joanne Zanoni. Uh, Joanne uh, is a graduate of St. Joseph College and Boston College. She's a licensed independent clinical social worker and is currently the executive director of the New York State Coalition Against Sexual Sexual Assault. Her professional experience in the violence against women field began in 1992 and has included a variety of positions in sexual assault and domestic violence prevention and intervention from direct services to administration. She has developed materials and trained others in the field nationally on two key topics, protecting sexual assault victims' privacy as well as implementing sexual violence primary prevention strategies, which has definitely been the topic of our show today. So, Joanne, welcome so much to the show. Thank you so much for joining me today. Oh, thank you, Jessica, for having me. So I know in New York State, we have seen a lot of ups and downs when it comes to funding and support for race crisis programming and services. So can you share with our listeners a little bit about what what the impact is because of these funding challenges? Um, absolutely. Um, and there have been both uh, rape crisis intervention funding changes as well as um, sexual violence prevention funding changes. I'm just going to focus on the prevention piece right now. Okay. Um, yeah, so in um, 2014 um, and 15, there, there was a loss of funding, um, federal funding called Rape Prevention and Education Funding. And there was a cut to New York State. Um, it's money that Centers for Disease Control and Prevention award to every state. And for many years, the states with small populations received awards so small that effect, effective prevention work was nearly impossible. And so everyone agreed that this needed to be addressed. Um, unfortunately, there was no increase in the RPE funds. And so when the formula was adjusted 
for awarding monies to each state. It resulted in significant decreases for the most highly populated states, New York being one of them. Um, So that was the first piece of it. And, of course, um, New York State Department of Health administers those funds here. And faced with such a huge cut um, in the funding, um, DOH made the decision to restructure the way they made the awards. Um, Previously, DOH had awarded um, the RPE funds to all the rape crisis programs covering all 62 counties. Um, It was a small amount, basically about $27,000 each, Um, not enough to do comprehensive sexual violence prevention work, but still enough to do some promising work in each county. But faced with this um, latest cut, DOH decided they needed to take a different approach, and that's why they shifted to funding only six regional contracts that cover 17 of the 62 counties. Um, And they chose the 17 counties um, that would form those regions based on the highest average number of reported forcible rapes during a five-year period, 2007 to 2011. So that's kind of the the background of <laughs> how right, we got to our current model of six regions. Um, it does mean that forty five counties lost their prevention funding. Um, in most cases, all of the money that they had to to do prevention work, um, and that meant that um, a lot of prevention education um, programs are no longer happening. Programs like the CDC recognized safe dates as an evidence-based program, um, but others that are evidence-informed as well, such as Expect Respect, Girl Circle, um, Mentors in Violence Prevention, Tough Guys, um, Bystander Intervention Programs too, like Bringing in the Bystander, Green Dot, Coaching Boys to Men, um, of course those gaining popularity on college campuses. Okay. Well, and it's just, you know, the challenge for a lot of um, not-for-profits in in the country as a whole is how do you balance the funding and then shifts in priorities, which is really what occurred here at the state level in New York um, around the issue of sexual violence prevention. So now you're, as the executive director of the coalition, um, you know, coalitions play a big part in advocating for support for funding for programs, uh, rape crisis programs throughout the state. Um, Can you share with our listeners, what are some other works that coalitions, sexual assault coalitions do to advance efforts in helping survivors of sexual assault? Um, yes, absolutely. Um, so the, the main roles of state coalitions are to provide training, um, technical assistance, which is basically a fancy word for consultation, um, <laughs> <Right>. you know, <laughs> um, uh, resources, um, information, um, state sexual assault coalitions serve as a type of a clearinghouse for information and resources regarding sexual assault issues. Of course, those issues are so vast, um, it's hard to, sometimes to keep up with all of the new developments. But that's one main role that we play. And then there's also an advocacy piece um, with regard to policies, practices, um, improving systems so that um, 
both the response and the prevention of sexual assault is more appropriate, um, more victim-friendly, um, more effective. Mm-hmm. Great. Yeah, the co- and the coalition, the state coalitions, and I know for us locally, have, have just been a great resource to um, kind of evaluate maybe efforts or things that we're hearing. And just having that partner at the state level has been a great asset for uh, rape crisis programs. Um, what are some current sexual violence prevention efforts that uh, NISCASA is currently leading in, in New York State? Um, there's actually quite a lot going on with um, sexual violence prevention. You know, sometimes when you are in the midst of doing the work, um, you don't necessarily realize everything, all the good right. stuff that's happening. How and, much um, you're really doing, yes, absolutely. Exactly. But I, I, so I was jotting down some notes. Um, I, I didn't want to leave anyone out. Um, and um, I, would have, I do want to uh, point out also that um, because of NISCASA's efforts, along with um, New York City Alliance Against Sexual Assault and a group of rape crisis program representatives, it looks like our state has um, agreed that sexual assault intervention and prevention is important. And so there were some dramatic changes in the state budget that just passed. And oh, I'm hopeful that those, yes, I'm hopeful that those funds are going to help to restore programs that were lost in New York State. Um, but currently, um, uh, be, besides the six regional um, sexual violence prevention centers that um, Caitlin and Brandy, uh, being one of them, talked about, um, there are also partners. Um, NISCASA is not necessarily leading all of these projects, but we are trying to be a strong collaborator. And so one of them is um, actually a project of the New York State Coalition Against Domestic Violence. Um, they, in 2006, they created um, a intimate partner, partner violence prevention consortium to provide state-level leadership and, and support um, to challenge and reshape social conditions and um, norms that we condone and, and promote domestic violence. And this group, um, they came up with a five-year plan, um, but then as funding and other resources dwindle, yeah. it can be difficult to sustain those type of yeah. activities. Um, the good news is that Niscative just reconvened that group in uh, December. Okay. And um, yes, and so we're moving forward. NISCASA is part of that group, along with many other members. And um, also, part of it was um, to see whether we should also try to revive a task force working on engaging men to end gender-based violence. So that w- that was a very exciting, exciting couple of days that happened in December. NISCASA is continuing those efforts. Um, uh, Ms. Casa um, also has an exciting project that um, it's a new funding that we received last year that will um, allow us to um, kind of do our vision of primary prevention work indirectly. Um, our vision was to adequately fund a couple of pilot sites and to provide those uh, two sites with a high level of individually tailored support. 
we really wanted to increase the chances of effectiveness and success. And so uh, we were able to award funds to the Sexual Assault and Crime Victims Assistance Program at Samaritan Hospital, that's in Rensselaer County, and the Advocacy Center in Tompkins County. Um, This is connected in part to another large project called the Enough Abuse Campaign. Both of these sites are Enough Abuse Campaign pilot programs. And the Enough Abuse Campaign is led by Prevent Child Abuse New York. Um, It's been in place for several years now. Um, The Enough Abuse Campaign campaign really focuses on um, private and public partnerships, um, bringing together a wide variety of community members um, who believe that there should not be child sexual abuse and they want to do something about it. It is um, definitely um, lauded by CDC as uh, an evidence-based program, and um, this program was started with no funding. So um, it is helpful that Ms. Casa has been able to support a couple of uh, pilot sites working on this and uh, to, for them to be able to expand what they're doing on um, ending the abuse, ending enough abuse campaign to end child sexual abuse. Right. Well, and it's great to see, I mean, it, and it just shows um, kind of the collaboration between the state level um, programming um, about sexual violence across the lifespan. So bringing in the, the piece around children and adults. I mean, we, we have various programs that provide various services, but bringing those all together with an effort like that is really, really great um, to see and, and appreciate the, the leadership that you, you're all providing um, to bring attention to child sexual abuse um, in the context of sexual violence prevention. Um, can you just share with our listeners a little bit? I mean, you're touching on it right now because you're talking about all the collaborative work we're doing within our state, but how do state coalitions uh, work together throughout the nation? So can you share a little bit about maybe yes. some things you've done there? Um, yes, absolutely. There, um, Just like each uh, state has a state sexual assault coalition that's an umbrella for the rape crisis programs located in communities throughout the state. Um, we have a national organization called the National Alliance to End Sexual Violence, and all of the state uh, sexual assault coalitions are a member of that organization. That organization really helps us to stay informed about what's going on at the national level, uh, what's happening in different states, um, so a variety of policy issues um, come up, um, also resource issues. There's a listserv that we, we are all a part of, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, so we're able to ask each other questions. We're able to provide um, support to each other, um, share resources, and so that's, that's one thing. Um, I know that Caitlin mentioned Prevent Connect. Um, that is a national technical assistance project out of the coalition in uh, California. There's also the resource sharing uh, project specific for okay. uh, state sexual assault coalitions, a project out of the Iowa coalition. And um, those two projects do provide us similar support um, just to help us stay abreast of developments and as prepared as we can be. Um, right, right. 
you know, to well, do that, the work. That's yeah, great. And, and, I, and I think it that, that, I'm sorry, go ahead. It has the, it offers that peer-to-peer support system. Uh, okay. Specific to prevention, there's a national um, rape prevention and education meeting that happens each year. Um, every state administrator of the RPE funds and every state sexual assault coalition um, is supposed to attend that meeting. That's another okay. avenue where we can hear what's going on in other states. Right share that that together so Joanne I just I want to thank you so much for joining us today I think one of the messages from today's conversation is both at the local and state level there are a lot of uh, providers and and advocates really doing a lot of great work to help address the issue around sexual violence prevention and if you want to learn more about Niscasa you can go to their website which is www.niscasa.com So thank you so much, Joanne Zanoni, for joining me today. And as I mentioned earlier in the show, April is Sexual Assault Awareness Month. So we'll be highlighting our final show next week on this topic. So thank you so much for tuning in again for the journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join me every week week Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time, 11 a.m. Eastern Time. And do your part this week to give hope to others. Thank you for tuning in to The Journey, Stories of Crisis and Hope. Please join your host, Jessica Pirro, for another edition of the program next Tuesday at 8 a.m. Pacific Time and 11 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. We'll see you here next week.